0: Under Common Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs.
1: We did not choose to be Guardians of the Gate, but there was no one else.
0: I'm Ian Woodworth. I'm joined by my co host, James Daly, and today we are bringing it home. We are going to be talking about the concordant opposition of the Outlands and Sigil, the City of Doors. So we are returning to the center of the multiverse. According to the Great Wheel cosmology of D&D and wrapping up our Modron March here at home.
1: Not quite home for the Modrons, but really it's just a doorway. And you will have noticed if you have followed us for this wonderful march and about the past half a year almost, just about every plane we talk to has either a door, a portal, or a faction related to Sigil. This really is the hub of everything.
0: Yes, it is the city that sits atop the spire at the center of the Outlands. So There is the Outlands, which is in the middle of the Outer Planes. Then there's the Spire that's at the middle of the Outlands. And then there's Sigil that sits surrounding the tip of the Spire.
1: It's kind of like the DNA in the nucleus of the cell. It's kind of, you know, in the middle of the middle of the middle.
0: This is the center of the multiverse, or as close to it as you can get.
1: I really, from this, got the feel. I mean, I watched Loki on Disney+, and you had the TVA was the Time Variance Agency, I believe it was. But they kind of had that, you know, whole portal of doorways where they could kind of get anywhere they needed. And they had, like, the Time Jumper thingies or whatever. But it had this feel to Sigil, It was just kind of the point where you could go anywhere. There was another book I enjoyed as a young adult, another fine myth series, in that they had the plane of D.Va that was kind of just a giant market plane that, you could get anything and you could go anywhere from. And again, it also has this fill of Sigil from that as well.
0: Right, yeah. So the spire at the center of the Outlands, where Sigil is located, is canonically the origin point of the multiverse, according to Great Wheel Cosmology and D&D. So this is the location where the multiverse started. Right. And
1: so, from that multiverse, and again, with the different lore of, you know, with the dragons and where they've split, this is kind of the seed. This would be your point of Big Bang to use kind of a material realm analogy. Just everything started here.
0: Absolutely. So, unlike the rest of the outer planes, the Outlands is technically finite, it is very large. There are pockets within it that are divine realms that are in themselves infinite. But it's almost like they're infinite bubbles where one portion of the surface of the bubble happens to be pushing through the outlands and is an access point.
1: That makes sense. And again, too, with a lot of these realms, they're going to be divine, so you get a lot of divine magic, and therefore it's not quite... Again, the physics and the material space within these realms can be a little tenuous. If your players get up, just throw dice at them. I prefer d4s; deforest or pointy, and tell them D&D magic, get over it.
0: I mean, it's all multiplanar metaphysics. It's not intended to conform to real-world physics. It lends that extra bit of... Uh, Fantasy? Yeah.
1: Yeah, because it's a fantasy game. Get over it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, heaven forbid.
1: Heaven forbid, that's right. If you want an actual physical, you know, hard tax, this is exactly real world, play 40K or not (laughs) no 40k has its own walkiness too i don't think there's actually i mean any game's going to have some variation and some fluff and again if you got a player that's really pinning down like how much space is space just tell them that if i dropped you by yourself on the planet mars which is a technically a smaller planet you're not going to have enough time in a lifetime to explore every aspect of it it's just not going to happen same with this
0: right yeah yeah
1: so then throw dice at them (laughs)
0: <laughs> this is my weekly reminder that here at Undercommon taste we do not encourage or condone violence towards your players please do not <laughs> actually throw dice at people use a spray bottle. that is called assault and we do not condone it this is why i have the slightly evil alignment indeed so a raid around the rim of the outlands equidistant to one another are 16 gate towns and each gate town leads to one of the 16 outer planes. There's a portal within the town that, if you pass through the portal, you will come out at a corresponding permanent portal on the other side in the plane that it connects to
1: i really like this and i, I know why there's 16 because there's that many other planes and it makes sense but with the rings inside of rings and then you have points that are equidistant and i would imagine you know there are roads so therefore straight lines drawn to each and we start getting this look of like a metatron's cube or some of the sacred geometry that i really love it fascinates me and if you're sitting there and you want to draw a map you could really do something like that really neat and really make an awesome you know top down roadmap of where these cities and planes are unfortunately 16 i can't think of anything that would fit that perfectly that already exists but it comes really close to a lot of designs that are already there so feel free to use those for inspirations but i like that everything is out everything is balanced everything is exact and orderly and yeah I, i would really have fun drawing these out as a map
0: i mean it's you're drawing your cardinals and then you're bisecting them and then you're bisecting those. Correct. So if you wanted to take the sacred geometry route, that would be probably using ad quadratum. So you're using a square base as opposed to a triangular base. Yes. And you could fairly easily do that. I'd have to wrap my head a little bit because it's been a long time since I've tried to draw out any sacred geometry shapes, but you wind up with real quick, 22.5 degrees between.
1: Yeah. So you'd have four overlapping squares and then you'd have the rings that you would have coming out. So you'd have to have, Squares of a decent size, so that the points would be big enough to establish. Or you could use two intersecting octograms but again, that would get a little messy. Again, sixteen doesn't give a whole lot of space between, but still,
0: could look pretty cool. See here, that's what two to the fourth power is. That right? Yeah. Two squared is four. Two cubed is eight. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We're nerd sniping each other. I We're know, so right?
0: <laughs> or two squared squared. No, not quite two squared squared. Yeah, because two he... squared is four. Four squared is 16. 16. Oh, yeah, you're correct. Okay. See? Twos. Yeah. Twos I can, work. I can math. <laughs> and, and, you know, if we really want to just start deriving meaning that may or may not be there, D&D cosmology is all built on dichotomies. Yes, this is true. Good and evil. Law and chaos. You know, it's always twos. Right. So it makes a little bit of sense
1: okay that's it you know what we're doing it deep dive okay let's put on our hats okay because again i happen to really enjoy sacred geometry this leads to numerology and alchemy and a whole bunch of other things but i'm going to try to be concise on this one so within numerology eight is an important number eight being the four cardinal points physically and then flipped also eight cardinal points of energy spiritually take that And then again, double it because now we have good and evil. We have eight cardinal points for the good. We have eight cardinal points of evil. And this does give us the number 16. Having everything within a circle would mean it is bound and controlled. If you have the points exceeding the circle, that is where things become free and chaotic. This is Sigil. This is a point of where everything is mostly orderly. Everything is bound. Everything works. So, again, you would have this 16-point diagram arc, whatever it be, bound within the rings of the city. In Sigil, now you're triple bound within three rings, which gives it even more strength, which I am sure the Mistress of Pain had fully in mind when she built the place. <laughs> I'm going
0: full bore. Let's go. <laughs> right. And not only is Sigil a point within this. It is the origin within this. It is the central point from which all other measurements have been derived. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's been your crash course in sacred geometry that may or may not have meant anything.
1: <laughs> Rabbit trails. Woo. <woo-hoo. laughs>
0: and here we were saying that we were going to try and avoid them. You, I mean, you threw that was like, you picked the best. One I did. In front of I take full responsibility for that one.
1: You picked the brightest, reddest flag. You could and just like, <laughs> Hey, Toro. <laughs>
0: uh, anyway, <laughs> let's get back on track here. So, each of the gate towns, as I mentioned, leads to one of the 16 Outer Plains. And the terrain and landscape around each of these towns mirrors the location that it connects to. So you're going to have neat orderly fields on the ones that lead into Arcadia. You're going to have massive forests in and around the ones that lead into arborea you're going to have a whole bunch of weird floating stuff around the one that goes to limbo
1: yeah and so for this it's kind of like the scene in nightmare for christmas when jack skeleton's looking at the different portals he's in the forest and each tree kind of has the picture of what it's going to be there instead of a direct picture it's just kind of the land around it Has developed kind of like the realm has bled through the portal is a way to imagine that.
0: Yeah, and the closer you get to Sigil, the more uniform it becomes and the less individualized. Yes, the less individualized it is until you get basically to the center and everything is just sort of uniform and drab because this is essentially the plane of true neutral.
1: Right. And as we explore most of these, and I have picked several planes that I would be comfortable with, for me, Sigil probably would be, be home it is set it is orderly you can get anywhere you need to go but it's not boring but it is somewhat predictable there's a comfort there and again while i do shift a little low on the alignment plane and a little towards chaotic i do float pretty close to that true neutral point too i don't go too far chaotic i don't go too far evil i'm pretty close to neutral fairly close somewhat depending on the day
0: (laughs) but because the outlands is technically an outer plane There are also petitioners here. And also there are petitioners here because there are divine realms here. Right. And the petitioners here are truly neutral. And so if they perform an action that is inherently aligned. So if they perform, say, a good action, they have to perform an action of the opposite alignment of an equal magnitude To offset it.
1: Right. So They have to
0: maintain the balance.
1: So if a patron were to help a traveler along the way, maybe their wagon broke a wheel or something like that, and they help these travelers put this wheel back on the wagon so they can continue their quest, to balance that, they're going to have to find and kick a puppy somewhere,
0: basically, that turns out. Maybe not that drastic, (laughs) but what it would be would be by fixing this person's wagon, which is A charitable a good act they would have to figure out okay they have fixed their wagon which turned what would have been a two-week walk into a one-week ride in their wagon so they now have to find another traveling group and basically stall them for a week yeah i could see that and this is
1: kind of personally how i try to live day-to-day life is i try to do enough good deeds on general to keep myself covered on a bad day when i just feel like being an asshole and i'm like okay you know what i've already balanced my karma for that we're good all right i feel okay now and i can go on about my day
0: (laughs) so because of this The petitioners in the Outlands typically don't interact with the individuals who approach them because they want to have complete control over the actions that they do or do not perform.
1: Exactly. You want to pick when you want to be an asshole.
0: (laughs) And so it's typically going to be a case of there's a petitioner approaching the party because they have... A score that they have to, have to balance.
1: Correct. And this can be hard for the party too, because you don't know which way the petitioner is trying to balance their books. If the party members or the players Do we approach a petitioner at this point? The petitioners may talk, but it is going to be very curt, very polite, very bland answers. You might get an absolute direct yes or no answer. You might get a shrug of a shoulder and walk off. And again, they will try to interact as minimally as they can.
0: And they will be more likely to assist you the fewer details they know. Yes. Because if all they know is that you're trying to get to Gate Town X... They can give you directions. That is not an inherently aligned act. There's nothing inherently good or evil about giving you directions when you ask. It may be slightly lawful if you wanted to argue that. And then they could balance that by giving someone incorrect or scenic directions. Yes. But by and large, simply giving someone directions is not an aligned act and they don't have to do anything. To compensate for that.
1: Right. But if they know your intent.
0: Yes. If they know your intent, suddenly them giving you directions has the potential of being an aligned act.
1: Right, and you can get into all kind of philosophical debates with this of the whole, were the workers on the Death Star for the Empire evil or were they basic workers? Because they'd have to know, you know, what the Empire was doing in Star Wars. It is if you aid someone knowing their intent or actions, are you in some way culpable or responsible for the result of that action? And depending on your players, if you want to go into a philosophical deep dive, you could go all night with this.
0: Absolutely. All right, so magic in the Outlands is kind of interesting because with the exception of certain spells that don't play well with true neutrality you know if you have strongly good or evil alliance spells strongly lawful or chaotic alliance spells spells that detect alignment are one that they give as an example which is not a 5th edition thing. They've completely divorced all spells from alignment in 5th edition. Right. So we don't have to really worry about that in the current edition. But in 2nd edition, it was very much a thing. Oh, very much, yes. Even in 3rd. Yeah, to a lesser extent, though. It was not as strong in 3rd edition as it was in 2nd edition. But aside from those few spells, nothing is blocked in the Outlands. You can cast any spell that you want. However, as you start moving away from the gate towns the gate towns are in the outer ring where everything goes you get to the next ring in and suddenly ninth level spells just don't work you get one more ring in now eighth level spells don't work either and as you get progressively closer the ceiling for what spell levels actually work continues to go down until you get to the spire where All magic is nullified.
1: And this fact here makes what Vecna did even more substantial. So again, you've got a lich who comes through. And at the end, when he gets to the center of Sigil and is about ready to set himself up, he did it largely in the center where magic wasn't allowed. And he's still kicking ass. I mean, yeah, okay, you've got a lich, big magic dude throwing spells. Okay, yeah, I get that. Fine. Well done, scary dude. Strip all his magic away. Not a big deal, right? No, you stripped all his magic away, and he is still hammering the ground with your head.
0: So magic still works within Sigil. Okay. Sigil is like this little bubble where magic is allowed. Okay.
1: I was going to say, because that makes Vecna even more terrifying in my book to go through all of that and like, yeah, I don't need my spell. Screw you guys.
0: Yeah. So the limitations within Sigil itself are that you can't teleport in. You have to use an established portal that leads from somewhere into the city. Okay. That's awkward. So, yeah, you can't use the gate spell, you can't use teleport. You can't transition in from the astral plane. You can't do any of those things. And you also can't spy in to Sigil from the astral plane. Okay, gotcha. Everything else works fine. Okay. And that's also how the Lady of Pain blocks gods out. Right. Because once you get to the ring where fourth level spells are blocked, where you can only cast first through third level spells, that blocks all connections to the astral plane. So that means that even the gods can't teleport in. Okay. Okay. So if they're wanting to go to the Spire at the center of the Outlands, they have to teleport into the fourth ring, which is where fifth level spells are blocked. And then they would have to hoof it the rest of the way to the center.
1: Now, that's kind of my point is when Vecna did this, he was at demigod status, if I recall correctly. So older second edition lore. This also may have changed when they tried to reinforce Sigil after Vecna's exploits.
0: So, when I was going through this, I went and read part of the Diveckna Die module. Okay. Mainly because I wanted to get a little more insight into who the Lady of Pain was. Okay. Because the Lady of Pain does appear in that module. And so, here is the actual sidebar from the Diveckna Die module. Again, this was the final module of 2nd edition. This is the module that explains the changes from 2nd to 3rd edition. Okay. All right. It says, Vecna can't go to Sigil. Sigil is warded against the entry of gods. But Vecna, incarnating as a true power, is in Sigil. What gives? It comes down to a confluence of unique circumstances engineered and nurtured by Vecna. His plan... See Adventure Background, took an age to formulate and another to execute. Informed by the very force of magic itself, Vecna wove a tapestry of detail, arcane props, and raw power that deposited him in the City of Doors, despite its age long ward enforced by the enigmatic Lady of Pain. In a sense, Vecna cheated. I like it. Well done, Vecna. Though he stole the power of another god, Ayus, to catalyze his own full ascension, Vecna's power waxed over a period of time. At the moment he stepped into Sigil, he wasn't strictly a demigod or a god. Moreover, Vecna didn't use a portal created by Sigil's protector, the Lady of Pain, to enter the city. Instead, he used his unique position as a waxing power in the demiplane of dread. Taking advantage of its unique properties, Vecna warped, twisted, and forced the entire plane into a wholly new configuration. That temporary contortion was the funnel that punched a doorway for Vecna into Sigil. After all, as a student of the Serpent knows, Sigil is the founding stone of the multiverse upon which the current planar structure is built and buttressed.
1: So Vecna rules-lawyered his way into Sigil yes i fucking love this dude and so if you have a player being a rules lawyer at the table just tell him don't be a vecna and move on and then throw dice at him but yeah i kind of love this dude he's awesome
0: yeah so basically what he did was he shed off enough power enough divine power to just barely no longer be a demigod but he's using a demigod as a battery to shape The entire demiplane of Ravenloft to turn it into a funnel with enough power to punch into the city of Sigil.
1: That's freaking awesome. I love that. That just gives me the warm fuzzies all over. And the fact that gives me warm fuzzies probably says some unflattering things about me, but you know what? (laughs) Deal with it.
0: (laughs) All right. So... Let's go ahead and touch on some of the notable locations within the Outlands. We're not going to go into these in any detail because there are so many of them. We would be here for weeks. We would. And also because it is actually mentioned that there is unidentified terrain. So there's basically stretches where, yeah, there's stuff there.
1: Let the DM do it.
0: (laughs) You know, these are spaces that are filled with such minor demigods and these little tribal gods. If you've read American gods, think of the warehouse where all the forgotten gods are. Right. Each one of them would probably have their own little tiny fiefdom tucked away somewhere here in the Outlands.
1: Right. And really, from a homebrew context, this is kind of a perfect place to set things up or run things. If you need a place for your god or your village or whatever to kind of pop up, throw it here.
0: Absolutely. You can totally run a Planescape-flavored game without ever leaving the Outlands. Okay, now let's actually get into these locations the first one that is mentioned is na which is the land of youth and home to most of the deities of the celtic pantheon including Lou, the morrigan and Ogma.
1: who was it Finn mccool
0: Finn mccool wasn't listed in the list of was he
1: not a deity or was he just a hero i just remember he had like one of the best like mythological names ever i think Finn mccool
0: was just a hero
1: okay still one of the best mythological names ever
0: Yeah, I will agree.
1: Okay, so he's like a Perseus for those in Greek mythology, you know, again. Yes. But still, an awesome name. And again, a hat tip to Jake with Heroes of Tara definitely gave me an itching to delve into some more Celtic mythology. So thank you for that.
0: Yes, and Ogma is actually one of these gods that was appropriated into the Forgotten Realms pantheon. He is a god of knowledge in the Forgotten Realms. The next is the Norns. The Norns are a group of individuals, not a location, but they're a group of Norse fortune tellers. They're basically the Norse equivalent of the fates. Fun. And they huddle around the well of Erd, which is this well that they're able to use to discern the future. And it's under the roots of Yggdrasil. This is the well that Odin plucked out his eye to drink from.
1: Oh, OK. Nice. Again, we're getting some nice lore on this one. I like it.
0: Yes. And the Well of Erd, of course, connects to Ysgard. Of course. Next is the Dwarven Mountain, and by extension, the Caverns of Thought. So the Dwarven Mountain is, as the name suggests, a mountain full of dwarves.
1: This is a great location to play Dwarf Fortress.
0: Yes, it, <laughs> it actually is. And this is for the three big dwarves dwarven gods that aren't necessarily good aligned or lawfully aligned and so they're not in mount celestia with the bulk of the dwarvish pantheon okay the mountain itself is divided into three realms the top of the mountain is the realm of Virgadane, who is the dwarven god of luck and wealth okay the middle Portion of the mountain is controlled by Dugmarin Brightmantle, who is the god of learning and innovation. Okay, and the bottom third of the mountain is the realm of Dumathoin, who is the god of mining and underground exploration, and also the protector of the dwarven dead. So he is the dwarven death god.
1: I like this. And these three definitely need to make an appearance in our verdigree and campaigns we draw up because these all would fit beautifully.
0: Oh, yes. Especially Dumathoin. Yes. Yeah, we'd have to put a shrine to Dumathoin somewhere in our town.
1: I could definitely see that the copper dragon. We talked about the copper dragon making some of the shrines look semi-animated and stuff like that. That would oh. work perfect.
0: We had talked a bit that the copper dragon is masquerading as a priest.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: He could be a priest of Dumathoin.
1: Yep, there we go. I like it. There we go.
0: And so he actually also acts as an undertaker for any of the miners who happen to die in the mine. Yes. And he maintains a mausoleum where their remains are interred, which works because he's a copper dragon and he can burrow through the stone with his acid breath. Yeah, and so he just burrows out a new slot in the crypt whenever he needs to inter a body.
1: Yeah, I love that. And it's like that would be an honor. Like there is, again, a certain amount of honor being interred by this priest at this thing. So it would be like those that sacrificed themselves to save others would be interred. Since they chose to stay in the mind, their bodies can remain in the mind with honor type thing. Again, we could build some lore up with that real easy.
0: I don't think even that. I think that this would just be basic funerary rites. Okay. Because if he is the protector of dwarven dead, Uh, yeah, that works too. And that would be primarily the dwarven dead, but he would also be entering the bodies of other races that happened to be worked in the mine. And they, they didn't have a connection to another divine entity. So there wasn't someone else to take the body. So basically they're giving the final rites because no one else is there to do it. Okay, yeah, I like that. Because that does seem like something that this particular sort of god would do, especially since he is a god primarily of mining and underground exploration. So by being miners in the first place, they already fall under his purview, whether they're dwarves or not. I like that. Okay, getting back on topic. (laughs)
1: Like I said, (laughs) rabbit trails everywhere. It's not
0: an episode if we don't go on a few. (laughs) Below even that almost like the dwarven mountains underdark is the caverns of thought the caverns of thought are the realm of ilsencine who is the god of the illithid
1: Ooh, spooky
0: it's never explicitly stated but it gives this feeling like ilsencine is actually a divine elder brain okay It's got that sort of a feel to it. Ilsencine also is canonically the creator of Cranium Rats. Snazzy. I I believe we touch on them later, yeah. We do touch on them a little bit later. But yeah, so they are down here in their little caves. And if you are able to maintain your sanity long enough to get to the center of the realm and find il down there, you can ask any question and receive an honest answer about what's going on anywhere in the multiverse because il has tendrils that spread across all of the planes.
1: I love that. This also kind of has the overmind feel from the original StarCraft. You know, you had the hive mind basically and you had the species that were pan-galactic planetary but they all were ruled by the one sentient entity so yeah that gives me some fun tingles i like it all
0: right so also down here is an unnamed realm for Xemnid.
1: <laughs> i'm glad you tried to pronounce that one i could not <laughs>
0: yeah Xemnid. g-z-e-m-n-i-d who is the beholder of god of obscurement and deception and the only beholder god aside from the great mother who makes her realm on i think the 14th layer of the abyss nice so yeah there's also a beholder god in the equivalent of the underdark under the dwarven mountain
1: i like it kind of spooky kind of scared to go digging talk about dig too greedily and too deep you're gonna find some of these things
0: all right Next location, the Palace of Judgment. This is the central hub for the Celestial Bureaucracy, which is the D&D equivalent of the Chinese Pantheon. From within the Palace of Judgment, you have portals that lead all of the other Celestial bureaucracies' divine realms across all of the Outer Plains. Okay. So you're going to the Duke of Thunder in Akron. You're going to Sunxiang in Gehenna. You're going to the Jade Emperor and Mechanus. If there is a Chinese pantheon god, there's a portal here that can take you there.
1: Makes sense. Again, bureaucracy, it's a thing. Paperwork has to be delivered. You've got reports filed. You've got deadlines.
0: I like it. It's a very Confucian thing. Yes. Okay, touching on some of the other ones. Next one is Simwanya's Bog, which is the afterlife for lizard folk. There's no mention of a deity here, but... I'm sure that there is one. I mean, it's called Samwanya's Bog. So I'm assuming that there is a Samwanya somewhere. It would make sense. Who might be a god or goddess of the lizard folk. But
1: who's buried in Grant's
0: tomb? Exactly. (laughs) Next is Tvastri's Laboratory. This is home to Tvastri, who is the Vedic slash Indian god of artifice and science.
1: Gonna have a lot of artificers here. I like it.
0: Yeah, this location is... Immediately adjacent to the Dwarven Mountain and can easily be mistaken for part of Dugmarin's realm. So Dugmarin being the Dwarven God of Innovation. Right. I would almost say that their two realms actually butt up against each other. And if you're not careful, you can walk from one into the other.
1: I could see that. I could almost see this like you have the old Renaissance workshops where you'd have a workshop at the base of a mountain because you'd have a stream or river coming off the mountain and they'd have water wheels to turn their billows for their furnaces or the mills for stone and for lumber. And so it's kind of just right there to make use of all the mountainous resources. Lumber, stone, the water, any kind of shade of protection from wind and rain. And so yeah, it kind of just nestles in right there.
0: Yeah. Next one is Foth's estate. So this is the home is it of thoth the
1: Toth. I thought the H was silent.
0: It could be Toth. I am ignorant of a different way to pronounce it. Okay. I'm going to defer to you on this one. Okay. If you say it's pronounced Toth, I will believe you.
1: I've heard it both ways. I figured you had something that was
0: no, I am purely going phonetically based on the spelling.
1: Okay.
0: Ian from the future here to tell you that apparently the most common pronunciation is Thoth. He is the Egyptian god of learning and writing. But anyway, this is Toph's estate. This is home to the mulherandi slash Egyptian god Toph. And his great library.
1: Right. And I know Toth mostly from what's called their emerald tablets from alchemy research and things like that. There is text you can read that are attributed to Toth.
0: Okay. So, yeah, this is basically the location of the Library of Alexandria.
1: Kind of, yeah. I
0: like it. The next is the Mausoleum of Chronepsis. This is home to Chronepsis the Time Dragon. Very nice. And his realm is filled with countless hourglasses, and each hourglass represents the remaining lifetime of one dragon or dragon kin in the multiverse.
1: Ooh, I like this. I could see this being a story hook or campaign arc where you are trying to break into this realm to steal the hourglass and destroy the hourglass of a particular dragon because he is too beefy to kill them outright. And so you are trying to eliminate them in a sneaky, nefarious fashion.
0: Or, you know, find one and flip it. I like it. Because if you flip it, suddenly they start to reverse age. Yes. And so maybe they Which get younger, be-
1: but they keep their knowledge, but they're losing power at the same time. You can yeah. do all kinds of stuff with this. This would be a lot of fun. I get excited for this one.
0: Which could be a good thing. It could be not so good thing, because right. if they're old and almost dead, right. and you know they have gone past what would be ancient worm status, and they're on the decline, and you flip it, And now they're actually recovering and regaining strength coming out of senility.
1: Here's another one for you. Maybe a dragon is doing this. As an alternate to lichdom. I could see that. Because if
0: you were able to market in such a way that you would be able to find it again, you could just send somebody back in there in a couple hundred years to flip it back again.
1: Yep. Where's our story writers? Because we need to put this out. (laughs) Where's our army of writers,
0: damn it? (laughs) We have ideas. We have ideas, but we have no money. (laughs) Anyway, next up and the last one. That we're going to talk about is the Court of Light, which is the home of Shekinester, who is the goddess of the Naga. Ooh, the Naga in D anD D being basically snakes with people faces.
1: Right, they're not quite the Yanti. So, like the Naga and Wow are more Yanti like than yeah. Than are. Yeah,
0: there are evil Naga, but there are not many. I think it's mostly the undead ones. Yes. I think Naga by and large, are considered lawful good. Okay. I could be wrong.
1: I have not looked at the Naga in a long time, because I would be looking for them, and I'd find the Yanti and I'm like, no, that's what I want. (laughs) But again, with all of these, as we stated with the Chinese pantheon, a lot of stuff to use, a lot of great lore you can delve into, a lot
0: of wonderful ideas. But again, please be respectful. Okay, now that brings us to Sigil. The central hub. (laughs) To quote the book, Sigil's an impossible place. A city built on the inside of a tire that hovers over the top of a gods-know-how tall spike, which rises from a universe shaped like a giant pancake.
1: Okay. With this, I almost see kind of like the space stations as the giant rings. Yes. Yes. So what if this was high enough that it was kind of almost like, and it's not, but like in a geosynchronous orbit above the spike, because the spike would be tall enough, and it's sitting there, and it could be cloud, it could be a city, but you've got this donut-shaped torus around the spike that's just kind of floating over the rest of the plane.
0: I mean, that's basically what it is. It is, yeah. Because depending on depiction, sometimes the spike comes up through the center of the donut, sometimes it's floating above the spire, but it is basically a donut that is floating at the top of this spire.
1: No, I'm hungry. Thanks.
0: You're welcome. (laughs) And they're all built on the inside of the donut. There's nothing on the outside surface of the donut. It's all on the inside. It's totally a space station. It might be. It's an orbital platform. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) It's that ring that rotates to create artificial gravity. Exactly. So down is always the direction under your feet. And up is always the direction over your head.
1: This is not dissuading from the overall platform at all.
0: <laughs> when you get into Sigil, you could choose to find your way around and get lost. Or you can hire a guide. And there's lots of guides looking for work within the city. There are two classifications. There's touts and there's factotums. Touts are independent, or at least they claim to be. Most of them are getting a commission from specific inns or taverns or something so you know you take them on a little sightseeing tour and then you drop them off at oh this is the best tavern in Sigil.
1: This would be like if you were in the middle of New York and every cabbie's got, you know, a slight kickback. If they say your name, they drop you off to a bar or a restaurant or a hotel. Drop my name, they'll give you a good rate, and they're getting a slight kickback from that. That's kind of how this would work. Yeah, pretty much.
0: There are, of course, some that are truly dishonest and only seek to lure you into an alley to mug you. But, by and large, if you hire a tout, they will take you to a place that fits your description of where you want to go it may not be the best place it may be the place that they have been paid to take you to but they'll take you to a place that fits your function
1: it'd be close enough that you wouldn't know the difference by and large
0: And once you've been in Sigil for long enough and you have figured it out for yourself and you don't need a tout anymore, then you'll probably know that you got taken advantage of. But that's (laughs) part of the learning experience.
1: That is what we call the cost of education.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then the factotums are basically touts that belong to one of the major factions that operate within Sigil. So all factotums are touts. But not all touts are factotums.
1: So basically the factotums are kind of like NASCAR and they actually just wear the badge of their sponsor so you know what you're buying?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so if you also happen to be a member of that faction, they are going to be completely honest with you. Of course. If you happen to be part of a rival faction, they're not going to want to have anything to do with you. Right. So the city of Sigil is called the city of doors because if you know where to look, You can get here from anywhere, and you can get to anywhere from here. Yes. And everybody, and we mean everybody, comes to Sigil.
1: It's the place to be.
0: The only people who don't come here are gods, because they're not allowed. So every individual who is not a god, or a demigod, can and probably will come to Sigil.
1: It's kind of an atheist's paradise. Well, I guess more agnostic.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, more of an agnostics. I like it. A deist.
1: Yeah, that would work. You know, you're over there. You're fine. I'm here in Sigil. Send me a letter if we want to meet. We'll find some neutral ground somewhere. We'll be good. Otherwise, I'm I'm chilling here.
0: So there is a rough peace within the city where everyone is expected to be on their best behavior. Otherwise, the Lady of Pain gets involved and nobody wants that. (laughs) Even the blood war is put on hold in Sigil. That's impressive. A diva and a devil might share drinks in a tavern. This is where Azaraphale and Crowley go to have a drink yes. and not look suspicious. <laughs> but they're constantly eyeing each other, looking for signs of betrayal.
1: Right. And so they're sitting here taking a drink. They're looking for signs of betrayal. They're trying to pick up whatever kind of information they might be able to glean, any slip of the tongue. This is kind of like the whole bridge of spies type
0: thing. Yeah. Of course, this doesn't mean that there isn't conflict in Sigil.
1: Oh my God. I know where this is. This is McAnally's. again for jim butcher fans max is accorded neutral territory no one's allowed to fight there again huge jim butcher fan so yeah this is mccanaly's
0: yeah so it doesn't mean that there isn't conflict in sigil it's just that the factions are careful about it they're careful to keep it in the shadows to keep it off the streets the proxies and priests the various gods will carry out campaigns against one another And the alliances shift, quote, like quicksilver on glass.
1: Sounds very tenuous.
0: Yeah. So one day a group of priests is going to be working with one faction to further their goals. And then the next day they're going to be attacked by that faction because that faction has partnered with a third faction. And
1: those priests are no longer useful.
0: And as long as the conflicts are kept to the shadows and don't spill out into the streets... There's not really any issue, but as soon as it becomes an issue of Sigil's security and by extension, an issue of the lady's security, the lady of pain comes out and puts an end to it.
1: This is where your assassin rogues are really going to try to flex because, again, you can get away with things as long as it's not above board and notice. If nobody notices, nobody can complain. These are your stealth missions.
0: Yeah, as long as it isn't overt.
1: And remember, no witnesses also means stealth. (laughs)
0: Uh, If you start murdering all of the witnesses, you're still going to get in trouble. You might. Again, depends on how many people can call alarm first. If nobody can ring a bell or, okay. Because they're still going to find the bodies eventually. Yeah, this is true. People, People go missing. I mean, even if they don't find the bodies, just people going missing. Because one of the examples given for how you draw the ire of the lady is when... The common people start muttering about the lady's inability to protect them.
1: Oh, I like it. Oh, very nice. I want to cause all kinds of trouble here.
0: I'm going to get kicked out. <laughs> no, that's not how she does things. <laughs> okay. So let's talk a little bit about the Lady of Pain before we get to that point. Yes. So She is one's dummy mummy. Who, <laughs> buddy? Ooh, buddy? That is Sorry. an inside joke that I am not explaining on the podcast. I had uh, to. <laughs> so, no one is entirely certain who or what the Lady of Pain is, only that she is the de facto ruler and guardian of the city of Sigil. She is essentially a proto deity. She's a primordial being of incredible power that predates the gods. As I like to interpret it, she is the architect who basically pressed the button to start the multiverse. And so she stays here at the origin of the multiverse to make sure that nothing comes in and unmakes her work.
2: Okay, I like it.
0: And it's also why the gods can't get into Sigil. Because if they can get into Sigil, then they would be able to gain access to the origin of the multiverse and alter it. Which is why Vecna getting in was such a big deal. Correct. (laughs) Which is exactly why Vecna was trying to get in. in. Exactly. So one thing that she is not, she is decidedly not a god. She has no priesthood. She has no temples. She has no desire to be worshipped. In fact, if you decide that you're going to start worshipping her, they're going to find your body with all of the skin flayed off of it. Impressive. She is adamant that you don't worship her. As
1: an evil bard, that would be a fun thing to trick people into doing.
0: Oh, that would be a good way to get yourself killed, too. Yes, probably. And I think, personally... The reason for that is because if people start to worship her and she becomes a god, she will become expelled from Sigil.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I would follow with that as well.
0: Yeah. And she can't protect a city that she's not able to enter. Correct. And if she becomes a god, she will not be able to access basically the mod panel on the back end of the video game (laughs) to alter the code to turn off God mode so that she could get into actually futz with the code. Yes. So she doesn't speak. That is a very big thing. She does not speak. And when she happens to wander the streets, she is to be avoided because interfering with her plans or progress causes horrendous gashes to just appear in the offending creature's flesh.
1: This kind of reminds a little bit of the architect in the Matrix series, kind of sitting there with all the various panels, watching how everything happens, kind of able to slightly change and adjust things per his whim.
0: I can kind of see that. Yeah. yeah. And then if a creature truly poses a threat to the security of the city, she instantly banishes them to the mazes. The mazes is a labyrinthine demiplane or a series of labyrinthine demiplanes that the lady creates in the deep ethereal so she just makes a labyrinth in the deep ethereal that you're never going to get out of and teleport you there okay no save no just recourse prepared. you just go poof i like her and the mazes are sp- specifically created so that creatures and objects can get in via magical transportation but can't get back out
1: I would almost say this is probably like a Demiplane on the Plane of Carceri, because this sounds a lot like Carceri.
0: No, it is specifically in the Deep Ethereal. Okay. Because that is where the stuff of creation is. It is, okay. And so she is literally making a labyrinth out of the stuff of creation as a oh. prison
1: for you. Oh, that's kind of vicious.
0: Yeah. And it plays into that whole, she is the divine architect of the multiverse. Because if she is able to, at a thought, create an entire demiplane within the Deep Ethereal and then put you in it without any recourse, that just goes to show you how powerful she is. Absolutely. So the Lady of Pain is a plot device. Yes. Yes. She's not an NPC to give out quests. She is not a final boss to be conquered. She exists above, beyond, and throughout the entire setting as a whole. And to challenge her is to meet your end. Immediately. No sense. Immediately. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Which, again, kind of proves Vecna was a badass. (laughs) And to cement her status, her visage, the mask with the mane of daggers is the centerpiece for the Planescape logo. Nice. She is literally the face of the Planescape setting. I love this, yes. So that is the Lady of Pain. I think they may have given her stats in 3rd edition.
1: Her stats are nope.
0: <laughs> I don't agree with whatever they may have given her. It would make sense if they did that, because if the whole thing kind of started to break apart, that would be something where her power would be starting to wane and that might be a canonical reason why we haven't gone back to sigil potentially i don't like it i don't agree with it but that could be it and it could be that vecna punching his way into sigil caused a cascade effect where she is starting to lose her power
1: I would like that. I don't think they have thought that far through. I mean, that would be a huge, long, arcing story. And as much as I like Wizards, I don't think they are linking stories from 20, 30 years back. It would be amazing if they did. As a DM, as a homebrew, though, you can do whatever the hell you want. And if you need stats for the Lady of Pain, guess whatever you want it to be, and then just add a couple hundred. There. That's what we got.
0: (laughs) I personally like trying to do this using the fate system rules specifically this fate rules from the dresden files rpg where there are just certain entities that are plot level entities that you're not meant to fight it is very clear that if you try to fight them they will just raffle stomp you i like it it doesn't matter how powerful you've gotten they are orders of magnitude above you yes that's The sort of thing that I would go with with the Lady of Pain.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Because
0: she's not a god. She is more powerful than the gods.
1: She is more powerful than all of the gods put together. Yes. Canonically speaking, except for maybe Vecna. But again, Vecna cheated. Well, Vecna cheated.
0: uh, Yeah. (laughs) So there's really only one rule in Sigil. And that's don't do anything that might challenge the Lady's power and authority. Fair enough. This could be fomenting a revolution within the city, or even creating enough unrest that people start to question whether the lady is capable of controlling it. One example that is given in the books is a now-defunct faction called the Communal, and they claimed that everything belonged to everyone equally, including the lady's share of power. Of course. And then one day, everyone in the faction's chapter house disappeared. The lady banished them all simultaneously to the mazes. All of them. As you do. And the remaining members of the faction who had happened to not be in the guild chapter house at that time, they just sort of melted into the crowd and they refused to acknowledge that they were actually part of this faction.
1: Oh, who those creepos? No, I I never heard of them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Those guys were weird.
0: They I don't were. know where we
1: talk about them at all.
0: Although there's a hook in there that there might be a small group of these guys living somewhere on the astral plane, just sort of hiding out. They're like, yeah, we're outside of Sigil, so she's not going to come after us here. <laughs> that is a brave assumption. There, <laughs> that is a very brave assumption. Anyway, talking about Sigil being the city of doors, there's portals everywhere in this city. It is the hub at the center of the multiverse. You can get anywhere from here so there are three types of portals within sigil you've got permanent portals you've got temporary portals and you've got shifting portals your permanent portals are the ones that are always in one location and always lead to the same location as the name permanent would suggest as the name permanent would suggest and they are all going to be controlled by one faction or another because if you have a permanent portal if you have a portal where You know that if you step through this portal, you're going to end up in Elysium. You can bet that somebody is going to stand guard over that portal and quality check anybody who's trying to get through into Elysium. Absolutely. And they're going to charge a toll to anyone who wants to try and get through to Elysium because that is a resource that you can toll. Yes. If there's money to be made, by God, somebody's going to make money off of it.
1: Damn Skippy.
0: Hooray, late stage capitalism. Um... (laughs) Anyway, next are the temporary portals. These are portals that they show up, they last for a little while, and then they go away. These are specifically included in the book to give DMs a way to put one-shots into their campaign. Right. It's stated as much in the books <laughs> that you've got a portal that shows up, you can use it once. It might be one of those things where you're trying to get into a very specific location. Like some of the examples that they give are the seventh layer of Bator or the palace of Lulf or the treasury room of a wealthy noble on the material plane.
1: You can use these for a lot of smash and grab type scenarios. Depending on how you're playing, you can give your party this portal is going to be open for three days and it's closing with or without you. So get in, get out, get what you're doing. It can be really good for a lot of various plot hooks or things like that.
0: Yeah. And with it being a temporary portal, that insinuates that once it closes, it's closed forever. And so it does make a good time crunch sort of thing for a one shot. So you're like, okay, we've got three hours to do this job once we go through. Right. And you can actually start a timer, and in three real-life hours... You better be back at that portal. You better be back at that portal. Or otherwise, that portal is closing, and you're going to be stuck here forever. You're going to be left to find your own way home.
1: I hope you have a wish spell hiding somewhere. <laughs> or gate. Yeah.
0: <laughs> as long as we're throwing around ninth-level spells.
1: Well, I mean, you know, just willy-nilly. That's how you do.
0: Yeah. right, and then the third ones are the shifting portals. And shifting portals, as the name suggests, bounce from location to location, either on the sigil side or on the other destination side, sometimes both. And sometimes they bounce at different rates. So a... Use
1: these at your own risk.
0: (laughs) Yes. This is another thing where you can throw in a time crunch sort of element to it. And you can do it as sort of a thing where, you know, this portal is going to be open to this location for three hours. And if we don't get in, finish the job and get out in those three hours, it's going to be three months before it opens back up. Right. And so we'll be stuck here for three months until our ride comes back. But another option is you could time it wrong and end up in a destination That you didn't want to go to. Correct. You could think that you're going into Hades for whatever reason you need to go into Hades, and you end up in Carceri instead. Oops. (laughs) And then you have to figure out how you're going to get out of Carceri, because it ain't easy to get out of Carceri.
1: It in fact is not.
0: And it does also hazard... Don't do that too often, or otherwise people aren't going to want to use portals in your games anymore. Right. And that completely destroys the entire structure behind actually running a Planescape game because you have (laughs) to use portals (laughs) to get to places in Planescape. And these are intended to act as bridges to cut out large chunks of unnecessary travel. Because yeah, you can take a portal from Sigil directly into the abyss to avoid having to get from Sigil down to the surface of the Outlands. And then you go all the way across the disk to Plague Mort, a trip that takes you weeks and weeks just to travel through the portal in Plague Mort and do the exact same thing. Correct. So basically you're cutting out weeks of busy work and random encounters and things that are not the adventure. You're just cutting all of that out and getting to the adventure. And that's what these portals are for. Every portal within Sigil has a key. Without a key, it's just going to be whatever location it happens to be they tend to be in uh, transitive locations so things like walking under an archway walking through a doorway climbing through a window climbing into a chest crawling down through a sewer grate anything where you're transitioning from one place to another place could potentially be a portal location I
1: think a good way to picture these, there's a term called liminal space. And there's a bunch of art for liminal space and things like that. And you can Google this real easy and kind of get an idea of what that is. But liminal spaces make a great point for portals or
0: gateways. Absolutely. The trick is knowing where the portals are and what key you have to have to pass through them. The keys typically reflect the portal's destination, so a portal to baytor might require a sprig of razor vine, whereas a portal to Elysium might require a pure white lily, something that reflects the nature of the destination.
1: Right, and so if you were starting here, or if you wound up in Sigil and you were trying to find this, then having to do a couple quests to curry favor to find out what the key to a portal is could definitely be some entry level missions campaign type things to kind of get the party built up to even start the adventure
0: or another thing that you could do that would i think would be kind of fun is one of your party members starts off with some random heirloom item okay like a necklace that has a semi-precious stone set into it and they're going through the city of sigil and they pass through one of these archways and the gem in that necklace happens to be the key for the portal that happens to be in that archway. And by walking through that archway with that necklace on, it activates the portal and the party steps through. Okay, And maybe that can be part of that character's story arc. You know, their parent used to be an adventurer and they did some great exploit in this other plane. And so now they're wearing this heirloom and suddenly they walk through and it's all Prince Caspian in here. And you're showing up in Bitopia and you're finding out all of the things that your parents did whenever they were young and adventurers before you were born. I like it. So the portals within Sigil can be found with the right magic. With the detect magic spell, you can find a portal, but only while it's active. So at a point whenever you could actually fall through it. Okay. So that would be something for like a portal that maybe doesn't require a key or in the case that I just mentioned, a portal that is activated by a key that you just happen to have on you by happenstance.
1: Now we've talked about some portals like this, particularly with like Shadowfell that tend to exist in like dark shadows or where light wouldn't fall. So they would be harder to see anyway. This would probably be a portal like that that is hidden. Maybe something that's just under the surface of the water. So if you're seeing it from the top, it just looks like light reflecting back. But, you know, or just on the other side of a waterfall, that kind of thing.
0: And I have seen examples in some other books on Sigil where you have to be careful in certain parts of town if there's puddles because if you step into a puddle that puddle might be a portal and you fall through into like the elemental plane of water
1: oh okay yeah that would definitely do it
0: another option is the true seeing spell if you have true seeing you can see where a portal is located whether or not it's active but that's all you can see is yep there's a portal there something's there but we don't know what and there's a third spell one that was actually put into the planescape source books called warp sense and with warp sense You can see where a portal is, you can discern where it will lead when activated, and you get a sense of what key might be needed to open it.
1: That would be a very nice spell to have.
0: And it's also only a second level spell. Ooh. Because it's second edition and (laughs) you have to go through a lot to get your second level spells.
1: This is true.
0: I mean, whenever the most powerful individuals in Sigil among the factions are ninth level casters... Right. A second level spell is kind of a big deal. Right. So yeah, you have to get into a completely different mindset as to power scaling with magic from second edition at, to fifth edition. Because in fifth edition, second level spells are like nothing. So as I mentioned, portals are the only way to get into or out of Sigil. Any spells that would allow for teleportation, including the gate spell or spells that transport through the astral plane are blocked from functioning within the city there is a way to actually force a portal open but forcing open a portal or trying to take a temporary or a shifting portal and make it permanent is a big no-no and will draw the ire of the lady of pain so you don't want to do that
1: and again as previous mentioned that's ill-advised
0: that is ill-advised sir
1: unless and probably even if you're Vecna.
0: <laughs> yeah so There are five wards within the city. We're not going to go into each of the wards in detail. Each of the wards could be its own episode.
1: Yeah, these are. There's a
0: lot of stuff in Seagull. So the general overview is the first one is the Lady's Ward. That's where the Lady of Pain resides along with the upper class of the city. This includes the rich and the powerful. Um, This includes the bulk of the Dabus, who we're going to get to in a little bit, as well as the 12 Factols, who are the leaders of the different major factions within the city. It also includes the city barracks, the armory, and the prison. And as a fun side note, the armory is the location where you have to go and fight Vecna at the end of Die, Vecna, Die. Very nice. So this is going to be the heart of the city, as much as a city built in the inside of a donut can have a heart. <laughs> okay, stands to reason. Next up is the Lower Ward. The Lower Ward is where the craftsmen and the alehouses are. I don't know why that's the combination that they chose, but that's the combination that they chose.
1: I'm kind of following this. Again, referencing while wow, Undercity is kind of built on that kind of lower ring structure type thing. So I'm kind of getting that feel with this.
0: A little bit, yeah. Next is the Clerks' Ward. This is where the bureaucrats and the scholars are located. It's where the Hall of Records is. That's where the Inevitables accept and enforce contracts. Okay. Within the Hall of Records. And it's also the location for something that I just had to look at the entry for it because (laughs) it's such an absurd name. It's a school for abstract impressionist art called the Laz School of Vivid Unpleasantness.
1: Somebody had... Some sort of beef with either a friend or a college professor or something. Somebody
0: had to take an art history course.
1: Yeah, someone had some salt. I'm just putting that out there.
0: (laughs) Yeah, supposedly it's got all of these like impossible spires and more spikes and blades on all of the spires than even most of the spiky architecture of Sigil already has. And they're all bright neon obnoxious colors
1: it would be like if someone like meshed the art of dr seuss with brutalism
0: yes (laughs) that is exactly what this is (laughs) vivid unpleasantness oh my okay (laughs) moving along (laughs) the next one is the market wards that's where the markets are of course but it's also where the guild halls are so the craftsmen are in the lower ward but the guild halls are in the market ward. Okay, makes sense. And guild halls, not just being like trade guilds, but also the guild halls for the various factions. A lot of the factions have their headquarters located within the Market Ward. And then the final section of the city is called the Hive. The Hive is basically the slum district. It's this warren of alleys and shanties, and it's home to most of the portals within the city. And the reason it's home to the most of the portals within the city is because of another spell that they introduced in this book called Sherlock. Not Sherlock like Holmes. S-U-R-E. And that is a spell which you can place upon a liminal space, a transitory space, to prevent it from becoming a portal. You basically lock it out of being a portal. Okay, But it takes money to maintain it to cast it and to maintain it. And so you go out to the hive, which is the slum, and people don't have the money to do that in the slums. And so they're basically at the mercy of whenever a portal decides it's going to open up.
1: I mean, we could talk about gentrification and things like that all damn night, all damn day. Yeah, that's what's happened here. So they've gentrified the other wards. They've prettied it up and made it to where you couldn't change things. It's kind of like when you have the historical districts of a downtown, which can be really nice, but then nothing else can come there because it'll ruin the flavor of neighborhood. So, yeah, I, t- I totally get that.
0: It's the HOAs of Sigel. Uh, that's a whole different level of BBEG.
1: (laughs) Ooh, an HOA, Karen?
0: Yeah. Oh my, yeah. I like it. We
1: need to make one of those. Anyway.
0: Anyway. (laughs) We're not solving that that at That's the very basic general oversight of the five wards of the city of Sigil. As we mentioned, there are two major creatures that are mentioned within Sigil, at least in the books that I had the time to peruse. The first one is the cranium rats. As we mentioned, Ilcensin, the Ilithid god, turned rats into cranium rats. You can tell cranium rats because you can see their brains. Sounds good. That's the visual cue that it's a cranium rat. And the more cranium rats are in proximity to one another, the more intertwined the network of their brains is. And so they have more thinking power and therefore become more intelligent. I like it. So the bigger the hive, the more intelligent it is okay they're kind of like the borg they are except that once a hive reaches a certain critical mass it has a chance of breaking away and falling out of the control of ill okay basically going rogue and one of these hives is referred to as the us i love it which is the colony of cranium rats living in sigil okay so they are more or less an independent cluster of cranium rats okay they still do what cranium rats do which is what rats do just more intelligently i mean it doesn't give them like telepathic language powers or anything like that they're just really smart rats okay and then the other creatures are the daboos the daboos are the servants of the lady of pain they are the de facto nobility if you will of sigil And they act as peacekeepers within the city. They act as the hand and will of the Lady of Pain. If something is going on that draws the Lady of Pain's attention, it's the Dabus that are going to go and figure out exactly who's causing problems. And they're going to bring that person to the Lady, and then the Lady is going to deal with them. So seeing these
1: guys is generally a bad thing. This is Um, the first sign you've done fucked up. And now you're about to find
0: out. (laughs) But they do also do things like city maintenance. Okay. Because there are different grades of Dabu, if you will. But why do you keep touching me? Me not that kind of (laughs) work.
1: I'm sorry, I had to. I couldn't go that long (laughs) and not do it.
0: (laughs) And another thing about the Dabus is that they don't speak, just like the Lady of Pain does. It is implied that she is... Capable of communicating telepathically with them. Okay. But they do not have a verbal language. Instead, they are able to display their language as a series of flashing runes. And so they basically have a phonetic visual language okay as opposed to a spoken language these
1: dabu are probably as close as your characters will get to encountering the lady of pain if they ever actually see the lady of pain then it's time to roll a new character sheet pretty much but if there were to be an interaction the lady of pain were to have a task for them or something like that it would come via the dabu
0: well I'm going to go ahead and state that per the book, the Lady of Pain does not hand out quests.
1: Right. What I mean is if there was something like were it
0: However, yeah. in Die Vecna Die, when the party shows up, they find the Lady of Pain standing there watching what Vecna is doing with her five Dabu bodyguards, and the Dabu communicate to the party on her behalf. Exactly. Hey, Y'all need to go deal with this. Exactly that, yeah.
1: So like I said, these Dabu are as close as you will get.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And they are considered the native species to Sigil. It is implied that they were in Sigil before the other races started showing up and building up the city. So they were the first ones? They were. Okay. And supposedly, there's a series of dungeons and underground complexes beneath the city implying that sigil in and of itself is an infinite planar location that has just been folded in on itself. So it is almost like a Mobius ring. So it's a Taurus universe. Yeah, it is a Taurus universe. Okay. Um, So they're able to dig outward, burrow outward indefinitely, infinitely, not necessarily that they are, but that the physical space present within sigil is not limited by the apparent size of sigil.
1: Okay. And again that gets into the weird, you know, d metaphysical things, but yes. Yeah. I like it.
0: And that's pretty much it. Um I do realize that this wasn't as deep a deep dive as we have been doing on some of the other planes. That's partly because This would require a four or five part series in and of itself to do that justice. Right. Um, Because that would require going into the wards in detail. That would require going into the factions in detail. And that's more than we have the time and spoons to do at present.
1: That said, we do rely a lot on our listener interaction and comments. So if you come up and reach and communicate with us, you know, via Twitter or TikTok or Discord and say, hey, I really like that single episode. Can you go more in depth so we can get more stuff? We will happily go and do a deeper dive, more specific. And again, eventually. Yeah, we do try to bring the content, you know, and follow content that our listeners enjoy.
0: Yes, absolutely. So. With that said, that brings us to the end of today's episode. I think next week we're going to be trying to do another monster-themed episode. Those seem to be going over very well with the listener base. So we are going to be doing an episode on oozes next week. This is one that I've been wanting to do for a while. I love oozes as a creature type. Very much, yes. Because there's so much you can do with them and so much that isn't done with them, especially in fifth edition. So I'm really looking forward to looking into some of the ooze creatures that didn't get brought into fifth edition and some of the things that we can do with that
1: i'm imagining we'll probably throw in some of the gelatinous cubes and whatnot as well because they are of a similar type
0: well gelatinous cubes are oozes is this? okay yeah i mean your basic oozes are your gelatinous cube your ochre jelly your black pudding and your gray slime
1: and your strawberry preserves <laughs> <laughs> and your cheese whiz we're gonna get all smuckers up on this
0: anyway anyway that brings us to the end of tonight's episode (laughs) thank you everyone for listening if you have any comments suggestions or ideas please send us an email under taste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our twitter account at uct homebrew you can also find us on instagram facebook TikTok, twitch and youtube just search under common taste we're on patreon patreon.com slash under taste that's where we put all of our write-ups hopefully by the time this episode comes out i will have been able to finish the write-up for our tundra behemoth that we made in the episode with jack kellum that's a big monster oh yeah
1: it's It's not a lightweight we're coming to super heavyweight class on this one
0: if you would like to help support the show financially please consider becoming a patron on patreon finally we are on discord you can find a link to the discord in our show notes and we would love to have you come in and talk with us
1: absolutely As always, if this is your first time listening to us, we're so excited you found us and thank you. Please click that subscribe button and also give us a rating and review. This helps increase our visibility and lets us know more what kind of content you want to hear from us.
0: We are working on organizing some stuff for... Our 100th episode, which is going to be coming up very soon. Very excited about that. Yes, we are going to be trying to get some of our friends in the TTRPG podcast community to come on. We're going to do a little hangout, a little Q and A. If you have any questions that you would like us to answer for you during that Q and A, please send us those questions either as an email or as a direct message through Twitter. Those are the best ways to get in touch with us. Also, we are currently organizing a one-shot game that is going to be parcelled out over the month of September because we are going to be taking the month of September off. Yeah, The podcast has been great, but we have done a hundred weekly episodes just about every week for the last two years, and it's time for us to take a little break. Yeah, it it does
1: take a lot. It's a lot of fun. We both have projects that have been needing attention, so we need to keep some life balance.
0: Yeah, my wife and I are taking our daughter to Disney during September, so it made sense. It was a nice point to take off, and so we are going to be taking the month of September off, but we aren't going to leave you hanging. We are making a one-shot game with some of our friends that I'm going to be parceling out to run the month that we're gone and after that we are
1: absolutely returning because there is still a lot of stuff we've wrapped up largely our planescape again it's been fun we've got other projects and other ideas we want to bring to you we are not done we are catching our breath but we are not done
0: and we are also going to be having a very very special interview later on in the year that we are going to reveal during our 100th episode so please show up and listen to that yes very excited because we are real excited about that one anyway thank you everyone for listening stay safe and we will see you next week when we talk about oozes happy gaming thank you for listening to another episode of Undercommon taste you can find links to all of our social media accounts, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch, as well as our Patreon and Discord channel in the show notes. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find more of her work at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmaryccrowell. Our logo was illustrated by David Sutherland. You can find him on Instagram at willx underscore 73, or on DeviantArt at DeviantArt.com slash David Sutherland. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe. We'll see you again next week.